Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Dallas. I'm Alexis. And I'm Anne. And for today's episode, we are joined by our good friend Doug from the YouTube channel For Every Kind of Geek to discuss Richard Starks Parker, The Hunter by Darwin Cook. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing great. Uh, it's been a hot minute since I've been here. Have we done one since the 52 episode? I don't think we have. That seems crazy to me. Yeah. That was so long ago. Wait, that was no, my first have. That was my first week in New York. I feel like that's a lie. I feel like we, we've, we've had to. I, there's no way I haven't done a show with Doug yet. There's no way. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. I remember doing a show with Anne. Uh, tell you what, if anybody in the comments can remind us which show <laughs> we ended up doing together. No, that was Cole on Doom Patrol. <gasps> I don't remember. I mean, this is you for sure have been around since because that seems we gotta we gotta leave that to the audience. That's what the engagement's for. Yeah, hey, dear longtime (laughs) listeners, let us know when Doug was here last. (laughs) Make sure you smash that subscribe button. Thank you. I I it's hard because I talk to Doug basically every day, and so literally yesterday. Yeah, literally yesterday we were getting brunch together. We did Friendsgiving yesterday (gasps) out here. Doug is my little bestie out here in New York, and I'm going to let you all see how cool he is. So, Doug, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners who may or may not have listened to the 52 episode or whatever other episode you were on? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. So um, to anybody who hasn't watched or listened, I guess, to the 52 episode, my name is Doug. I run the YouTube channel for Every Kind of Geek, where... I I cover mostly superhero comics, but I've lately been trying to branch out and cover all sorts of topics because one thing that I've really started to learn lately, I guess not learn, but appreciate is that comics, especially as a medium, are so much bigger than what we see in in the superhero sphere. Um, Like there, there are countless genres, countless media that you can adapt to comics and I mean, a, a perfect example is what we're covering today. I think um, Parker is an amazing example of what comics can be once you move outside of kind of what's seen as the norm for a lot of these books. Absolutely. Um, if you don't follow Doug's YouTube channel and you like our show, make sure to do so. Um I was a big fan of his channel before we became friends, and I found a lot of my favorite books through him. So check that out. But today we are talking, like I said, about Darwin Cook's Peace de Resistance, his adaptation of Donald Westlake, or under the pseudonym Richard Stark, Parker novel, The Hunter. So that was a lot of words all at once. But basically, Darwin Cook in 2009 decided to try and adapt his favorite crime novelist, Richard Stark's first novel about the character Parker, which is called The Hunter, which had been adapted into movies and such in the past. But Donald Westlake was very particular about adaptations, so much so that there are no movies based on the Parker novels that call the main character Parker. Because Donald Westlake's like, nope, sorry, you can adapt the story, but you're not allowed to say that that's my character because he's so particular about this character, Parker. And so Darwin 
approached him with IDW and basically was like, can I adapt your Parker novels? And Richard Stark said, no. And (laughs) Darwin Cook said, pretty please, can I? Here is what my artwork looks like. And he said, hmm, no. And then Darwin Cook said, please, please, I promise that you'll be involved and we'll email back and forth a lot and I will adapt the spirit of your book into comics. I think I can do it. Here's some more of my artwork. And then Donald Westlake said, okay. And then they began this back and forth where Darwin adapted the first Parker novel, The Hunter, into the book we're going to talk about today. Sadly, Donald Westlake passed away before, right before this book was published. The book was finished, but not yet published. So he never got to see the final product, but he was very involved through the entire process. And so this is a very faithful adaptation of his 1962 novel and then of his character as well. Um, This was a very strict adaptation of those 1962 novels. One of the main complaints that Donald Westlake had was that Hollywood felt the need to romanticize and make sympathetic Parker. Or if they did not do that, to take Parker from the cold workman style criminal that he was and make him a more bombastic guns firing kind of criminal, which he also wasn't something that was very important to Donald Westlake when writing these novels so much so that he baked it into his pseudonym, Richard Stark, was that the writing was stark. The writing was cold. This began This began as an exercise to see if he could write a successful novel without using any adjectives or internal thoughts. And he did. I think something that was frustrating to Donald Westlake was that his pseudonym, Richard Stark, became a much bigger seller than he himself, Donald Westlake, was because people fell in love with Parker, the Parker novels, the crime novels that were being serialized. I think something that is so interesting about the Parker novels that comes through really well in this adaptation is the idea that, I guess in the 1960s, that the thing that led to Richard Stark was the fact that Donald Westlake said the common knowledge of the time was that women would read hardcover releases that were much more literary and men would read pulpy, trashy paperbacks. And so as a hardcover author, he didn't feel like he was getting the full demographic. And so he wanted to write a book that he knew men in 1962 would like. And I think that's a very interesting lens to read this book through. And again, we're going to be talking about the graphic novel adaptation from Darwin Cook, but because it is such a faithful adaptation, I think that we're inevitably going to be talking about Richard Stark and about the story that he wrote, the dialogue he wrote, the descriptions he wrote that then were translated so beautifully by Cook. Um, Something that I really liked from Darwin Cook He talks about how hard it was for him to adapt this book because his instincts, having worked in animation with Bruce Timm on Batman the Animated Series and things like, um, oh hell, what's his name? The future Batman that wears all black. Oh, Batman Beyond. Yeah, Batman Beyond. Fun fact, 
when I found out that guy was white, I was devastated. <laughs> I was like, for whatever reason, as a kid, I was like, nope. Just like finding out Beast Boy was white also melted my brain. And I was, I still refuse that one. I was like, I'm sorry, Beast Boy is Latino. I don't know if you knew that, DC, but he is. <laughs> but anyway, Darren Cook working in animation was very used to like making things big and bombastic. If the adaptation said it was a rundown little shack, then in the adaptation, it was a very chic, beautiful shack. And that was something that Donald West like basically beat out of Darwin Cook with a stick. Hey, even the original cover for the Parker novel was like this big like shootout. And Westlake just wrote back too violent, period. And Darwin had to resubmit. And that's how we got the cover that we did. Uh, Parker contemplating next to his deceased wife. Um, but a quote that I really liked from Cook about his decision to not input as much of the prose and rather to work to visually adapt the story. He says, the first chapter of that book is so well written, it makes me want to puke. But it was like there's nothing visual left if you put the prose down. It's all there. It's an external description, people's reaction to the guy. So it's like, you know what? Let's take a good chunk of space here and see if we can achieve the feeling of that chapter purely through the visuals that he's directing. Right down to the hole in his shoe. And I think he pulled that off. But before I keep rambling, um, I would like to know a little bit do you guys think he pulled up, pulled it off? What did you think of this story, of this adaptation? What are our general thoughts about Parker right out of the get-go? Well, I have to say, for me, right off the beginning, I did like this book, but we kind of mentioned it a little bit off mic. I do feel like we have to start off the episode by saying this book is very violent towards women. I didn't initially anticipate that, and I kind of had to do some female healing and I cooked cookies tonight, baked cookies and did the laundry. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> Which you, is you should definitely issue a big old content warning because yeah, get, yeah. just to uh, say that off the beginning, it is very violent towards women. Uh, There's several instances which made me feel a little icky, um, very icky. And there's a lot to get through, but I feel like the story itself was captured in the way that it needed to be. I feel like um, he did a great job capturing what the novel was, and I feel like that was the goal. And I feel like with what Dallas just said, I'm sure that was an experience <laughs> to get where this was, just to say the least. But I did really enjoy it. I mean, I've mentioned before I'm a quote-unquote crime entertainment fan, so I really did like this genre of comic so i'm kind of curious to see if we can find more that are similar oh there are a lot of crime comics <laughs> <laughs> but no it was very it was very fun i enjoyed it but that's my little content warning at the beginning everybody mm-hmm. prepare yourself yeah and i think that's a good one to jump off of because it's such a like you said dallas an a direct adaptation looking at just the beginning of the hunter novel, which I have pulled up on Amazon and you can read through like the first dozen pages before it asks you for money. But um, it's <laughs> so point by point beat by beat exactly the same as it is in the comic. And it's cool to see all this prose get translated directly into just visual imagery. The start of this comic alone is one of the strongest starts to any comic I think I've ever read. 
it's really, really incredible. Just the, there's so much silent storytelling that happens in that beginning. And I love that. It's one of the books, though, that I feel like I appreciate the craft of it more than I appreciate the book itself, if that makes sense. It's a story where it's like, I didn't like the story, but that doesn't mean I can't see how it works and I can't appreciate the beauty of, holy shit, this is an achievement. And it's it's crazy because I think it's one of the best written comics we've read on the show. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know if I personally like it, but that's just because it's not made for me, I don't think. not. And I think it's an interesting conversation to be able to separate those two things when you're discussing um, media. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what are your thoughts, Doug? I I definitely agree with Anna and Lexi on this. It's funny because I kind of came to this book with like a, a sort of very rose-tinted view, and I think it's because I've read the entire series of these kind of back-to-back uh, and I think you and I actually had a bit of a conversation away from this where we, after we decided to do this, we picked it up and we went, Oh, Oh, there's a lot of stuff in here that kind of rubs us the wrong way. Uh, but yeah, going off of what Anne said, the craft in here is palpable. Um, I actually kind of discovered these because I had this little side project where I wanted to read, uh, basically the entire bibliography of Darwin Cook, everything that he'd worked on. And it's interesting coming to this uh, because uh, even though this is just one part of it, Parker, the series is what Darwin described as his masterpiece. This is the thing that he's kind of been gravitating to since the beginning. And it's funny that everyone kind of attributes his greatest work to something like the new frontier, which obviously is very good, uh, but is just such a, a small drop in the bucket compared to what he did and also what he wanted to do. Um, so like a, a fun thing about me is outside of comics, I'm also a huge like crime story fan and it's funny kind of discovering Parker after I've had all of these experiences, because uh, if you've ever seen something like the movie thief uh, by Michael Mann, or if you've seen something like the John wick series, which is obviously like a whole different vein, a lot of that DNA is right here in this novel. And it's interesting to kind of like trace all of those branching paths back to kind of this very humble, uh, paperback where it all began. It's fascinating to see how this one thing can inspire so much. Yeah, I think that the influence of the Parker novels is pretty palpable. I know Ed Brubaker cites the Parker novels as a huge influence on his work, not only in criminal, but just in general. I know that Stephen King has mentioned pretty frequently how much he enjoyed Richard Stark going so far as to making a novel that is a direct stylistic homage to Richard Stark. And clearly Darwin Cook adored Richard Stark's work with Parker. I, I'm i excited. I'm definitely going to read. Probably Point Blank is the one that I'm going to get because I don't... These are such good adaptations. I don't really want to read one that I've already read because <laughs> I already got it. It's already great. But I think 
I'm going to give us a little bit of a synopsis before we dive more generally into why this does or does not work. Please. Um, so this comic book follows Parker, who, funny enough, um, Donald Westlake said that if he had known that he would write 30 novels about this guy, he would have given him a first name and <laughs> he would have picked a different last name. Because he said, trying to figure out new ways to say Parker parked the car for 30 straight novels drove him insane. He said, I would have changed that man's last name because there is no good way to say Parker parked the car and cracked me up. But for a sec, you were going to say Donald Westlake predicted how annoying Spider-Man fans would be. (laughs) Also, yes. Yeah. This book is older than Spider-Man. How crazy is that? That's wild. That is pretty crazy. But basically, here we follow the exploits of Parker, who is a career criminal, someone who Donald Westlake described Westlake described as like a carpenter or a plumber of crime. Someone that isn't doing it because it's sexy or fun or because he likes doing it. He's doing it because he's good at it and it's his trade and there's nothing else to it. And we follow his pursuit of the man who ruined his life. We, this man, Mal, was at the center of a botched job where an $80,000 deal goes through and then everything falls apart when Mal encourages Parker's wife to kill Parker and run away with him with all of the money. And so we then go into this story and we find out Mal's motivation and how he convinced Parker's wife to do this. We then follow Parker as he pursues Mal eventually through his path of violence, arriving at Mal, punishing Mal. And then the final act is all about Parker having gotten his revenge against his wife and Mal for the betrayal that's outlined in the second act. He then turns to the the outfit or the syndicate or the mafia the mob that mal worked for he says you were paid by mal with money that was owed me you got to give it back and he then takes on the mob to get his money back and the book ends on the promise from the mob that parker will not live another happy day because of them and because of his actions in this book and so that that is the general synopsis of what happens here. I think that this is a book that needs to be experienced. I think that the craft on display from Darwin Cook in particular takes what is an excellent story and transcends it into an unforgettable story. This is a comic that much like From Hell, the moment I read it, I was like, okay, you're in my You're on my Mount Rushmore of comic books. And I think as well, this is going to be an interesting conversation, much like From Hell, where intentional decisions are made to make us feel uncomfortable about the main character. Something that Darwin Cook said that he noticed in his adaptation of this book, and this can be sort of our transition to talking generally about the book. Uh, He said there were scenes he arrived at that he felt like he had to take a break and come back the next day. Particularly, he talks about the cutting up of the face to keep it out of the newspaper. 
He's like, I got to that. And I was like, I guess I'm done working today because I don't want to do that right now. And he said, Richard Stark does an interesting thing with Parker where we're never supposed to root for Parker. But because the story is compelling and because he is the protagonist, every time that you feel yourself starting to be like, fucking get him, Parker. Hell yeah. Darwin Cook points out, Parker will slap you in the face and remind you that he's a bastard. He is not a good person. And so I guess my first question I wanted to ask is, is it hard to read a story where we're not meant to root for the main character because he doesn't have redeeming qualities? I say, is it hard to do it? I would say definitely yes, because it's easy, it's so much easier to get into a character where you're like, this is someone I want to see win in every aspect of their life. I, they're a good person. They're fighting the good fight. They're trying to do a good thing. And that makes that draws you in. It makes you part of the crowd that's rooting for him in the arena. It's what pushes you to go through the story. When you're reading a story with a character who is intentionally unlikable, it is difficult because they can do cool things. But then when you said those moments of ugliness arise, it it makes me want to take a break too. And it's difficult because it's one of those books where it's like a lot of times we use fiction as like that escapism. And this is one of the ones that's so brutally honest about just how um, people can be and that aspect of human nature where it's like you, there are people who will be awful and fuck you over to achieve their own goals. And they are the protagonists of their own story. And it's interesting to look at that. And it does offer a good commentary. I think you brought up a great point where it's like, it's intentionally showing you that he may be doing these things, but he's not a character that should be rooted for. I think that's what separates him from like someone like John Wick who I was thinking about a lot reading this comic because that's a character that they set you up a thousand percent to be rooting for. They give him the sympathetic background. They give him the sympathetic motivations. They give him all the best one-liners and the charisma and they push him through the story that way. This character is the opposite of that in every single way, except for the fact that his hands are also registered lethal weapons. Oh, can I read the description? I don't think this is in your guys' versions, but in the Martini edition, there are some special... Martini edition? Yeah. There's <laughs> this gigantic black book. It's I called the, it. Mar- the Martini edition. It's like extra, extra, extra big size. It's because it makes you want to drink. It's a coffee edition. table book. <laughs> it was misleading to me because at first I didn't like it because I thought Parker was supposed to be like a suave James Bond type. It's like Martini was James Bond. And so first I was like, this guy's the worst James Bond character ever, ever. <laughs> And then I realized he was, I realized he was supposed to be the bad guy. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) Um, they gotcha. (laughs) But basically Darwin just did these sort of impressionistic drawings of Parker along with the description of Parker. And so it says his face was a chipped chunk of concrete with eyes of flawed onyx. His mouth was a quick stroke bloodless. His hands looked like they were made out of brown clay by a sculptor who thought big. The office woman knew what he was. They knew how he'd fall on a woman in the night, like a tree. And... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm oh sorry, boy. that just is a terrible visual. A terrible visual. <laughs> <laughs> I, would rather, I would rather die. <laughs> than be falling on like a tree. <laughs> Shivers. 
Um, but Lexi and Doug, do you have any thoughts about media where we're not supposed to root for the main character? And maybe Parker in general? I feel like for me, at least sometimes I find it kind of hard to not root for the main character. Cause I feel like I'm so used to the, to the stories that are like, this is our person. This is the person we're following. This is their story. Everything is great. And so when you have a character that actually sucks, it's sometimes really hard to get into the story. Like, I feel like this one for me, I hated Parker. I don't like him. He is not a good man. But <laughs> no, the story not. is great. <laughs> um, for me, like, I love, like, I just felt like I was watching an old like black and white movie the entire time. I was like, this is just so fun. Like I thought it was just a fun media form, but I feel like if you, that's what made it work for me. Because if Parker had no redeeming qualities and the story was meh, I would not read it at all. But I feel like the way that it was written and the way that it was portrayed through the visuals made it for me. Absolutely. I would agree. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I do have a lot of thoughts on uh, just Parker and kind of how it it's a very interesting point in in the evolution of what I call the anti-hero. Uh, I mean, full disclosure, I I grew up an Iron Man fan, so I've got plenty of experience in liking characters that suck. But uh, I mean, it's Parker is such an interesting thing because I also read an interview from Darwin where he kind of talked about. Uh, where he was when he first found this novel. He grew up in the 70s, and that was a time when the anti-hero was becoming very popular in film uh, through stuff like um, Taxi Driver and actually direct adaptations of the Parker series. I think Darwin said his first exposure to this was an adaptation of The Outfit. Uh, so I heard like, it was point I, blank. This, oh, really? Maybe, yeah. I think maybe it's he not, mentioned ultimately not important. Yeah. <laughs> Either way. Um, it's interesting because uh, I think the anti-hero started out as a deliberate pushback against like the more family friendly leading man image. But since they've become more, more and more popular, Hollywood has kind of softened the edges a little bit. So when we'll see something that is an anti-hero, they're tailored in just a way that we can't help but root for them. I mean, you see stuff like that with uh, Breaking Bad, with Better, uh, Better Call Saul, uh, and, you know, like we've been mentioning, like the John Wick series. Uh, I think John Wick is literally a one-to-one with Parker for me because it's very much about uh, a career criminal, a working-class criminal who is wronged and has to kind of fight back against this oppressive system. But I think like Anne mentioned earlier, John Wick is way more sympathetic. He's got a dog. He's got a wife. He's someone who actively tries to fight against who he is. But I think what's fascinating about Parker, not necessarily what I like about him, is that there is nothing under what he is. He's, he's this hollow shell of a man who just kind of follows his impulses because he's not very deep. He's not very complex. He just knows 
what he wants and he goes after it. And I guess in that same vein, uh, building on what Lexi said, that's why I think the story works so well uh, because the world of Parker is kind of built around this kind of complex evolved form of crime. Uh, it's not just the mob, but it's like a very corporatized version of the mob. They've built themselves up so much that they have this entire kind of infrastructure. And I guess the, what makes it so interesting is the question of what happens when you pit that against someone who has kind of no sense of reason outside of this is what I want and I'm going to take it. I think something that's interesting to that point is Darwin Cook talked about the revelation while working on these books that these were a critique of corporate America from the 1960s. You know, it's about someone who gets screwed over by the system and then showing how ineffectual that system is at stopping him, but also like helping him out. You know what I mean? Like this is, you're not meant to like the outfit, even though you also don't like Parker. And this idea, uh, I think, I'm not sure when the switch happened or, or what it is about this, but so much of media is character driven, right? Like we've, we've been talking here about charismatic leads and how much easier it is to fall in love with characters and the plot serves the character that it's jarring to read something like Parker, where like Doug said, there's nothing deeper to Parker. He is the main character is a plot device, right? He goes through the complex plot of this book. And I just, I felt taken by it. You know, I felt taken by just how propellant it all feels that there is always something interesting going on. He is always moving forward. He is always pushing that narrative, almost like a slasher villain. You know, it feels like he's coming at these people like Michael Myers. I mean, even in the intro, you can see the way he walks. He's definitely a slasher villain. <laughs> I like well, when I the way people interact with him when they see him. I the scene with the woman in the car who sees him pass by, and then she's like, "Oh shit." Yeah, yeah. She, she's the only one who made it out alive. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like whenever I was reading this, I could just hear the Batman theme like "bum bum bum bum." <laughs> yeah, like what plays as he walks through his day to day life. Um, I think it'd be worthwhile to have a conversation about the violence towards women in this mm -hmm. comic. I think it's something that is clearly in the room with us here. I think we should talk about. It. I think we should tear it apart a little bit. There and is then, definitely a lot of it. And then I think we can talk a little bit more about maybe Darwin's craft in general. Mm -hmm. So maybe Anna and Lexi, if you want to talk about it, I don't want to like talk at you about my feelings about what happened <laughs> in this book. Very chivalrous of you. For that. Yeah. Yeah. Really there you go. That. You can have, you can have the hard conversation. Mm. I'm a gentleman. Honestly, it's the least we can do at this point. I do have some <laughs> thoughts. I just don't want to be like mm -hmm. a jabber mouth. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I'll talk about this problematic part. It's fine. You get the fun one. Um, no, but it is definitely like for sure an elephant in the room with – forgive my babysat dog. I don't know if you just heard that. Um, <laughs> he is really upset over the cookie on the counter. Um 
But it really is the elephant in the room. Like it starts at 100 and it doesn't really go down with this specific book. Um, We see it kind of right at the beginning with um, Parker's ex-wife. Like Dallas said, um, he does – it's kind of – I mean, it was a little unclear to me if she overdosed or if he instigated the overdose of that. I I mean, he for sure was like, scram, lady. I mean, he basically – he told her to do it. Yeah. And and she tried to, like, offer an olive branch, like – I'm sorry, I tried to kill you. Let's be in love. And he said, go fuck yourself. And then she did overdose that night. It's like, Mm -hmm. he didn't. And then. He didn't do it, but he he did it. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. Okay. That's how I felt. I was like, that for sure felt what happened to me. But I don't know if there was instigation more than that than I missed. But, um, and then he does, like Dallas mentioned earlier, she is the one that has the after mutilation to her body to keep it out of the papers quote which was disgusting it was so it was so early in the book i was like oh okay that's that's what we're reading here so i was like that's Mm -hmm. icky especially because like we get we do get so much background with his wife and like we see the reasons why and like we see what made her act and why and the downward tumble of her life after that um which is was troubling to see. Um, and then we just kind of keep going like one one girl after the next. Like he even goes and sees a quote-unquote friend in New York City and he is just extremely violent to her. He more or less kind of – the initial meeting, I feel like he kind of beats around the bush of like, you're going to tell me what I want or I'm going to get what I want out of the information and then when that information that she gave was old he came back and was extremely violent with her and it just is troubling because i mean we get we get the side of the story like she didn't know we saw the build-up for that obviously mal or whatever had moved buildings how was she supposed to know that and so that was very troubling to me to see the way that he handled that situation Mm -hmm. um and there's multiple more instances like that. Well, I I know I, for one, want to say just, you know, straight up, if you like this book, I'm going to cancel you because that's really problematic. That's really rude of you. And um, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. But it's one of those situations where it's like I see the intent and I let things slide if I can see the intent. Where it's like, I understand that it's like, we want to show this grim aspect of this world, of this character. And, you know, actual violence against women is a very grim and real aspect of our world. And especially in the 60s, when the stuff was much more prominent. And it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to watch, but that's the point. And I think that the scenes where it does happen, Darwin Cook does it very tastefully. I appreciated that um, scenes like when he's kind of a face that's handled very very subtly, very off page, and you don't even realize until the officer's talking about it later that that's exactly what had happened. Um, there's, I think about the scene with the girl that he ties to the radiator, and her death kind of happens in just a, a blurb on the side of the page, and it doesn't linger on it. It doesn't glorify it. It doesn't take any longer than it needs to make the point in the story and then move on. 
which is good. I think that's how you execute that properly. I think the issue that comes in for me, and it's one of the things where it's like, I get that he had to make the adaptation as strict as possible. It would have been fun to see a bit more, um, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? It's like more flexibility with how these characters were written. Because we are talking earlier about the difference between a character playing to the story and the story playing to the character. And these female characters really felt like, <clears throat> excuse me, they felt like they were plot points, specifically. Plot points first, character second. And I guess there could be an argument to be made that Parker is kind of the same way. But they served a purpose in moving the plot forward, and basically that's it. I feel like very few of them seem to have independent rationale, if that makes sense. Where it feels like they're going along with this because the story is forcing them to. And that they play their beats and then they're gone. There's not a lot of in-depth look at how like we, we talk about like um it's depicting the violence as something bad it's talking like hey this is some really messed up shit <laughs> and it's like i would like if i could have it my way i would spend more time investigating the effects that this is having on all the characters in the book but that's not what this book was going for so it's like i'm i'm at odds with myself where it's like would i sacrifice the overall message and theme and feel of the book for something that makes me feel more comfortable and that's that's a hard question absolutely um just kind of piggybacking on both of your statements something that i i agree with what you said by the way like i i remember my first a little bit like Doug said, you get lulled into loving these books because you read them all together so fast. And I remember my first instinct reading The Hunter was like, holy fuck. And then I just like kept reading. And then by the outfit, I was like, oh boy. And then by like, um, oh, I don't remember the one at the amusement park. I don't remember its name. I was like the greatest book series ever made. I love this. And then I returned to the hunter for this and i was like oh yeah fuck i forgot <laughs> about the fucking hunter but i think that something this book does well is it never glorifies those actions they are always off-putting and they are always mm -hmm. like jarring and off-putting and i think one of the ways that it does that is in the small parts that all of these women play other than his ex-wife who has a much larger part they still have like a personality and a humanity to them that feels very harshly snuffed out by Parker. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Anne, that they absolutely are just there for the plot. But I think in s the small ways that they appear in the plot, they feel like people that I am sad to have lost. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in a lot of things adjacent to this, and even one of my critiques of, the John Wick series, as much as I loved it, would be I don't know anybody but John Wick. You know what I mean? He's just he's plowing through those people and I'm cheering for him. And I like that Parker plows through people and everyone but Mal and the people in the outfit, like everyone that is harmed by Parker that doesn't directly work for the outfit, mm -hmm. I am upset about. And I think that the story is the reason that happens. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think that I just came down with this saintly <laughs> approach to this book. <laughs> I think that there is intentionality from both Westlake and particularly from mm -hmm. Cook here to say, 
these are off-putting things that are happening. You are not supposed to like what's going on. And whether or not using that as the slap in the face to remind you was a bastard is appropriate is a different conversation. Yeah. But it it is interesting that it's used as a slap in the face. Yeah, because it comes in the part where it's like, I've seen this used for the same purpose again and again and again. It's such a common theme to be like, we need to show that things are really bad. Yeah. Get the women. That's mm-hmm. And that's the first place that a lot of stories go to. Absolutely. And I think that's why, especially now, it's starting to become hotter and hotter topic every time we talk about something like, you know, Game of Thrones or um, media like that when it keeps going back to the same old wells that we've seen again and again. Because I think people are getting to the point where it's like, okay, we got the picture the last 567 times. And I think there's definitely a large a longer debate there as to if it's still having the same impact that the creators want it to have. And in like the sixties, I'm sure the trope wasn't as worn out as I feel like it is now. And I will go back and just double down on the fact that I think it works because it isn't glorified because I've read so many moments similar to this in big two comics where the effect is glorified whether it's to play to the audience or to play to one of the characters in the story and it's like the the i completely lost my train of thought but i've everything that happened in this book i have seen happen to a female character in big two comics handled in the worst ways possible and i think that this is a good example of like if this is what you need for your story and i feel like you have to be sure that you can execute it like this and that it's something that's actually going to benefit the story in some way it's not just there for shock value because i feel like these they don't come off like shock value deaths you know they feel like they are playing into that main that main theme and i feel like that's what separates it from some of the other books that we read and talked about the same issue before, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure if I'm like repeating myself or just rambling on and on, but that's, that's my thoughts on it. I like it. What do you think, Doug? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything and just said, uh, I mean, it's something that I keep getting caught up every time I read this because like you can, you can talk yourself in circles over. This is a book from the sixties they're, they're using a lot of intentionality with this. Uh, it's taken from a subversive point of view, but I, I, I find myself caught up in the same argument, uh, whenever I read something like from hell, because like, while it, while they absolutely use this with intention, they're trying to depict, um, they're trying to depict a dynamic that's colored, a lot of society part of me is always like, yeah, but do you have to really go in that hard and like detail it that much? Uh, and on the other hand, I do think that, I mean, especially with the way Darwin approached this, he, he definitely has an eye for how to twist this story and to kind of direct people in one way. Something that I completely blanked on um, until I actually reread the book this morning is that they go back and they show you um, everything from Lynn's point of view. 
And that's something that I never like picked up on because they, they outlined that she was basically in a no win situation. Like she, she had to go along with it because she was threatened and like Parker even acknowledges this. He's like, yeah, I mean, whatever. And then he goes ahead and he does all this anyway. And it's, it's one of those things where I think it goes back to Westlake really digging in and then saying, you're not supposed to root for this guy. Um, but I guess in that, in that same vein, um, it's, it's very tricky. I'm drawn in by the story, but at the same time, I think so many people can't help but identify with this guy on the sole fact that he's the protagonist because we have to walk in his shoes. There's this weird implicit bond. And that's why I think uh, <laughs> so many people identify with antiheroes nowadays, even though you know, you see a lot of the authors coming out and saying, I never intended that for, <laughs> I never wanted that to happen. I think it's this strange phenomenon that uh, I think we have to kind of define more. And once it's defined more, we can get a better way of viewing this media and a better way of kind of executing this media. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting wrinkles about this story is the idea that this was what Westlake wrote to appeal to men in 1962. Mm -hmm. You know, if the goal was, I want to become a paperback author who sells books to men, that Parker is what came out of that. And before we dive into that conversation, and maybe to give you a chance to think about what that says, I... I find very interesting that in 1962, what was viewed as literature were books that were sold in hardcover, right, for women. And what was viewed as like smut were like the action adventures written for paperback for men. And we have since switched that, right? Like when I was reading my newest book that I picked up, it was the new Stephen King novel, Fairy Tale, was a big prestige hardcover that was absolutely based on the dime novel, pulp novels from the 60s. And my wife, who is reading the best-selling author in the world right now, Colleen Hoover, is reading a little paperback, right? And hers is seen as lower Addison than... I would be reading those books. <laughs> that is so funny. But they're seen, as less, they're seen as less than, whereas like my fantasy escapist novel is seen as prestige, right? I think it's a very interesting pattern that those two have flip-flopped. The interpersonal drama went from being prestige to smut, and the escapist power fiction went from smut to prestige, being the biggest movies in the world. <laughs> um, there's some to chew on, but I guess, what do you all think about Parker as a novel for the men of the 1960s? Do you feel like it's... A critique, do you feel like it's, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't expand a flattering picture of men in the 60s, and I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like it painted a very, like, I don't know, it kind of gives me the same vibes as, like, the Wolf of Wall Street movie. Like, that movie mm -hmm. is made for men. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that book, this book is made for men. Like, it glorifies doing terrible things that 
in one way or another, I'm sure every man in the 60s wanted to be a badass hitman and wear a fun suit and sneak into people's windows. And I feel like this is more or less the reality of what that would have meant. Do you think that it glorifies it? A little bit, I would say. Really? I think it's it's funny because I think that's a large part of the discourse as to why Richard Stark kind of divorced himself from all of the adaptations because a lot of the movies did paint it in a fairly mm-hmm. glossy uh, kind of cool, alluring lens. And um, I don't know. It's a very tricky balance to get right, you know, because I think... I guess reading all the interviews, I can kind of understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, I can also get why this story would appeal to so many people. See, that's the, it, I think a lot of it comes into just the context of the original novel and Mm -hmm. it's asking, it's like, is the stuff that we find now to be truly upsetting and disturbing? Was that played the same way in the original novel or was that just, does it come off differently because Darwin Cook was able to make some slight adjustments in just how it's received to the audience? Cause I feel like there's a lot of moments here that don't feel glorified. I feel like some of the violent moments I could see could be, but I feel like a lot of the violence towards women felt like res- awful. I think it was played as this is supposed to be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder if that was played as something more of just like a power trip thing in the sixties. And if that was played more straight than you know, self-aware, which wouldn't surprise me for the 60s. Yeah, I mean, there are so many factors that change between the originals and this. I think, mm-hmm. one, you're definitely right that, like, the perspective has changed, but also I think we're, like, there's a whole visual element that's been added and stuff is being, like, definitively put in front of us. And I think that definitely lends a lot of... um strength to how Darwin either translated or maybe even adapted Westlake's message. Because mm-hmm. you can talking about just like adaptations, you can adapt something as faithfully as possible. Everyone's going to have their own individual voice. Everyone's going to have their own individual take on a story. Yeah. And even if you end up translating that beat for beat, some of your perspective is just going to naturally bleed onto that page. And so I have to wonder if some of more Darwin's more modern sensibilities came through in that sense. Because, you know, the fact that this is something that's like, this will appeal to men in the 60s. It makes it sound like it wasn't something like, oh, this will make men think for a second. This is like, no, this will make men, their happy hormones go off. You know, it'll make the happy chemicals. Yeah. Um, Do we want to shift... For a book that is by Darwin Cook, we have talked a lot about Richard Stark, which I think is important and interesting context. Do we want to shift the conversation to the visual component that Darwin Cook added? Uh, I don't know if there's enough to talk about on that one. <laughs> my question. My, yeah, this, yeah, you know, it's only one of the greatest artists of all time. What What do you think of the open? The From the city to... The face of Parker. What do you think of that opening to this book? I already said my part on it. I think. Lex, did you like it? 
I loved this artwork. I feel like the artwork is also one of the things that actually really did make it for me. It was very redeeming because it felt like, I, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, it felt like one of those old school crime shows. Like that's exactly how this art felt to me. And I feel like I commented last time we did a um, book by him, but I really do love his art style. It's just so, I want to say classic, but not like it's not at the same time. I know that probably doesn't make any sense, but like it's, it's just so its own. And I feel like it's so individualistic. And I also loved the blue color scheme. Like it just Mm -hmm. felt so nighttime all the time (laughs) it's very pulpy and it fits so so well yes that's that is the word i was looking for but didn't know (laughs) um something i really like about the craft of this dharma cook did everything and Mm -hmm. like everything in this book i've got a quote from him here he says i guess i looked at it and i wanted it to be completely cartooned by me down to the lettering the color tints even the digital corrections i'm doing all of the work The other thing was that I took what he said about how he approached writing the books, the name Stark even, and stripped down what I do and take the polish out of it. I tried to make sure that the art had a real live off the floor look to the point where the blue blue tint is laid right onto the boards. Nobody does that anymore. It forces you to work quickly and to do it for real. I also thought that it feels right when you're doing something about 1962 to sort of do it that way. So in an era where people were starting to do much, much and much more digitally, he made a point to make this tangible with ink and watercolor blues. And it was harder. It made it rougher. But that's what he wanted to do with this book. And I think that's incredible. Like the idea that all of these blues were laid down right as Mm -hmm. he was penciling them because things had to dry right. like. He couldn't, if he messed up on a page, he had to redo the whole page. Yeah. Like these are just such beautiful pieces of art. That's just nuts to think when you look at that opening splash page. Oh my gosh. Which by the way, cycling back to that, can I just say, I think the Russo brothers owe Darwin Cook's estate a sizable check (laughs) for those title cards in Civil War. Because like they're they're literally cribbed directly from this. Uh, Oh, for sure. But I also think... Uh, like he does it so much better. I think so much of the story is driven by like the visual presentation in this because I mean, like there there's that genius little bit at the beginning where you get some of the lettering and then it goes purely individual from that. And I think that's the perfect way of kind of showcasing what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. It's Darwin's way of saying like, yeah, I mean, some stuff has been changed, but this is, as close to the novel as you're going to get. We even have a rough unvarnished presentation to go along with that. And uh, it's so fascinating because like when you set this against, I think Dallas, you said this was one of IDW's first published works, right? Yeah. They were a young company when this was coming out. Yeah. It's, I mean, like there, there's so much raw creativity going into this where, like it's it's just Darwin experimenting with visuals, with presentation. Uh, I'm I'm even holding a copy of the the hardcover, and if you open it up, it has all sorts of this like these great '60s kind of accenting details inside the book jacket, 
And I think it's stuff like that, that goes the extra mile. Like, and he definitely wanted to create a work that felt of its time. And I can, I can like hear smooth sixties jazz playing every time I start reading this just because of that. I think what's so interesting when you read any of Stark's words, he's a very descriptive and talented writer. Like you just immediately picture what's going on. And so Darwin Cook's decision to make so much of this book silent because his job becomes redundant. If he just puts in the descriptions is very cool, but it's an exercise in how seriously you take the artwork of a comic book. Right. Mm -hmm. Something that I harp on a lot are people who view comic book art as secondary to writing or as an aesthetic that is added to the story that the writer is creating. And I feel like this book, I want to talk about this book because I feel like this book pushes back against that. So roughly, Mm -hmm. there is storytelling that happens at the beginning of this and there are no words. And yet you can see, oh, man, this guy, he's got a hole in his shoe. This guy is grumpy. You can see how people are reacting to him. One of my favorite bits is when he jumps the turnstile for the subway right in front of the guard. And the guard just looks up with this grouchy eyebrow like, what the hell? (laughs) And then you learn silently that he's a bad tipper at the coffee shop. Something that they go back to over and over again. Yeah, like when he goes at the steak shop, he's a bad tipper. And just even the little details, like him popping the uh, filter off the cigarette before he walks away. Like there are just so many little images that tell you so much about this man and so much about what's happening. Like you aren't told with words that he's forging a driver's license to then go and write faulty checks to buy things that he can pawn to then have cash. But all of it's happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just... I think it's so stunning. I think the most impactful moments of the story are silent. You mm-hmm. look at when he's staying at the the room of his ex-wife and it talks about how he tells her that he's not interested anymore. But then the page, it says, he lied to her. That tree wasn't dead. He was afraid of her. And then there's a silent panel that shows her shadow like leaning over him. And there's no words. And there's just like, she is on his mind. And like the tragedy of her committing suicide in the other room because she thinks there's nothing there is that we as the reader, because of the silent storytelling, we absolutely know that there is something there. Mm-hmm. You know? This is a story that I do not think even needed the words that it has. Yeah. It's, you could understand almost everything except for the minute details and I'm sure you could find some way to get people's names in there without having them having to speak them, but you could understand what is going on in the story. And I think just talking about that intro, which I said earlier was one of my favorite intros to any comic I've ever read, it does so much in so little time and in zero words to tell you everything you need to know about this character. It shows you just how intimidating and how imposing it imposing he is i love a lot of the framework that it does just showing him from these off angles and always like looking up at him and his face is shadowed until that final reveal and that final reveal is just you looking into the mirror and seeing that face and it's just the most angry rough um 
I'm ready to kill someone face I've ever seen in a comic. <laughs> and you know that this guy is on a mission. He is angry. And that's all you need to know about Parker. And it's it's perfection. There's There's nothing else to say about it. This is one of the best executed artistic moments I've read in any comic on the show, any comic this year. It's just it's masterful. Something that I love are the visual cues of when time is shifting into a flashback. There's mm-hmm. no, we're going into a flashback now, but the way it's colored goes from rough brushes with watercolors to this more like dot pitch thing. And something that Darwin specifically shouts out is that there's much more narration because he wants it to feel like someone is telling you what already happened instead of you watching what is happening. And so that's where the narration from the original book starts to come in is with the flashback scenes. And I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, you you can definitely see why Darwin wanted to do all this himself because so much goes hand in hand. Like it's so funny because right after you come back out of the flashback, there's this great splash page showing the city and just laying out, uh, everything that's happening beat for beat and the way that it's placed in the negative space and draws you down and then out into this expanse is so masterful. Uh, I mean, I think it just speaks to all of the, the years of experience he has in this and just how kind of how much of an appreciation he has for every level of the craft. So much beyond that, too, is told in light and uh, strictly visuals. Um, yeah, and, and I guess kind of going back to what we were saying before, there's definitely um, there's definitely a, a starkness to just the dialogue and even the pacing where you can tell there, there aren't any wasted words here. Anything that's there has a purpose. And if it doesn't have a purpose, it's not going to be there. I do. We have a favorite visual storytelling moments. We've all talked about the opening Mm -hmm. Um, to let you guys think. I think one of my favorites is when he goes back to kill Mr. Stegman Mm. for ratting him out. And he goes back and you see Stegman sign and then you see Stegman come in and then you see Stegman grab a cigarette, go to light the cigarette, be surprised. And then his head's just getting blown off. <laughs> and then there's no Stegman there anymore. It's just Parker, Parker, nothing. And so over the course of eight panels, you see the death of this man that betrayed Parker. And it's just simple and stunning. I honestly am completely blown away with this book. I feel like every single page I look at has something visually stunning. And I think something that's really interesting, Darwin Cook talked about a lot as well, while I continue to let you think about your favorite visual part, was that this is how he always wanted his art to be. He he likes panels. He likes this. And I like this quote from him. He says, I only know what I like. And I got to be honest, I'm still... I'm not completely free. Uh, You spend a certain number of years cutting Superman's pecs so that everybody's fucking happy and it tightens you up a bit. It's funny because for me, it's like stepping back to where I wanted to go in the first place. If you look at the Slam Bradley stuff, the roots of this book are are right there. They're in big score. 
Then, as I get into more Justice League-oriented work, everything starts tightening up and getting cleaner. Draftsmanship has to be on top instead of underneath. This is a chance to get back to where I wanted to be in the first place. And I feel like you can just feel this master set free in this book to do exactly what he knows as excellent storytelling instead of what is superhero iconography. Lexi, do you have a, a favorite moment that you thought of? I feel like, ooh, I don't know. I feel like the storytelling, like with the art, of course, of the original heist that got them all in trouble mm-hmm. was like my favorite. I feel like that was so cool, especially because I I didn't realize it till Dallas, of course, was talking about the different art style. I instantly knew that was a flashback. I was like, I know exactly what's going on. This is, I was like, this is great. <laughs> so I feel like that itself was really amazing because I, I mean, and yeah, I knew exactly what was going on. And it was so, it was so good. Like the suspense was really good in that scene. My dumbass me didn't. I was I that went completely over my head. I'm like, what's going on? And then I caught on eventually. You know, I'm only kind of stupid. Only kind of. Fifty percent. It's fine. We'll put that on the cover of your first book. Oh, please. She's only kind of stupid. And banana man. Yeah, I'm the other fifty percent of you stupid. It's okay. I would have it no other way. <laughs> There's there was two that I'm thinking of, and one is um, I when you see Linda for the first time in like chapter two, I think, hmm. um, just something about the way that he presents her in that first um, it's like a really tall panel on the side. She's just striking, and it reminded me a lot of what's um, oh, what's his face doing in um. That little that that comic you hate, Dallas, the Human Target. Shut up. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of that. It takes me back, and I'm I can feel like the influence from from this. It, it felt like I was looking at like ice in oh, that absolutely. scene. I and, feel um, like not, old, oh. not only did this novel influence like all of comic books, this comic book influence. All the mm-hmm. best comic books. Like everybody saw this and was like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Okay, great. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the other scene was just a short little action bit when he went to go see Frederick. And they have the moment in the office where he's like, you know what? I am going to kill you. And they reach over, they fight for the gun. And just one panel, gun pointed up, fingers reaching for it. And then bam, like the light of God ripping through this chair. And it's just... I I could feel I could feel that panel like in my heart. <laughs> that was so so impressive. There's and then to have that panel that you were talking about Dallas happen so soon after and like the way violence is depicted in this is just breathtaking. Yeah, it's pretty damn cool. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be just like Parker. <laughs> yeah, I think I want to be violent towards people too. Anyways, this is, um, I'm terrified. Someone on TikTok the other day, because I was holding a book, they asked, how big are your hands? And I was like, boy, do I have a story for you about big hands. (laughs) These hands look like they're made from somebody that work, made out of clay from somebody who works big. I requoted that on Twitter just because somebody gave me the opportunity. (laughs) It's such a fun line. 
How about you, Doug? What is your favorite visual storytelling in this book? Oh, gosh. I have too many favorite moments in this book alone. I mean, I love some of the pacing in some of these scenes. Like there's that uh, that one where he meets his friend and he does that repeating panel where it's just them making awkward silence. And then he just bluntly goes, well, you look nice. And then she goes, yeah, you, you don't know how to talk to people. But uh, there's one that really stuck out to me and it's right after he hits all of those pawn shops and he's just alone in his hotel room. And like, you, it, there's such a great little, I guess like uh triangle of, um, of shots of him taking a sip of vodka, looking at, you know, just the, the non fancy view of, of bricks <laughs> across the way. And, uh, you get the feeling that uh, the minute he lets down this hard as granite facade, he's just a very broken man. And that like that really just struck me. I love the line at the end where he said he couldn't tell anymore how much of this was a tough guy act and how much of this was just him at this point. Yeah. Gosh, I could fix him. <laughs> <laughs> could you? No. No, he he would do violence towards me. I'm not enough of a man to escape the violence towards women in this book. I don't know why, but I imagine him being smaller than you, though. Yeah, and he still picks me up by my hair. Yeah, sucker patches you right in the throat. I something it's a little that... Powerpuff Girls where she picks the guy up by his ankles and just swings <laughs> him back. Yeah, Parker's a Powerpuff Girl, like that angry um. Jerry's cousin from Tom and Jerry, who just got, like, completely <laughs> fucked Tom up. Yeah, that's um, that's him. Parker, believe it or not, Parker is five foot seven. <laughs> yeah, but he says he's six foot. <laughs> yeah, on his dating apps, his Tinder. I feel like on his Tinder, he like matches with all these women, and they show up, and they're like, "There's just a dark." I I, I actually have to leave. Uh, my friend, they text their <laughs> friends like, "This man has dark eyes." <laughs> Just a short man with giant hands. This guy isn't Aries for his uh, zodiac. I need to leave. Listen, <laughs> all that I have to say about the hunter is I hope we read more Parker books because this was truly Parker in his flop era. And I don't want us to just judge him for a little bit of violence that he did during a flop era when there are some very fun ones in the future. So I hope we get to read more Parker. I hope you don't hate me because I made you read Parker. I love these books. I will say, I looked at the title for that last one, the um, the amusement park one, and its name is Slayground. It's so good. It's literally, it's literally that one movie that, listen, I just forgot the movie. Good for me. Um, <laughs> it's one that everyone says is a Christmas movie. Mall Die Cop Hard. is a, yeah, it's literally Die Hard in an amusement park. <laughs> He says the, the one f- that everybody calls a Christmas movie, not knowing that literally our dad's the one that calls it that. Dad <laughs> is the one that calls it a Christmas movie. Because it is a Christmas movie. No. Thank you wrong. very much. I've never that seen a, it. It's you a crime f- movie around Christmas. What? I have not ever seen Die Hard. But it's Die Hard in an amusement park. It's so good. Also, I feel like it's not because he doesn't know what Die Hard is about. It's just like it. I know hmm. the plot of Die Hard. I've just never actually got around to watching it. Hmm. Y'all, also, Parker is literally Die Hard, and I, I don't have anything to back it up, but just trust me on that. Yeah, just trust me on this one. Um, 
what else do I want to say before we move into listener questions? Anyone else have anything nice to say about Parker before we move on? Or mean to say about Parker, if you want to I like the old-timey feel of it. <laughs> I like the old-timey feel. <laughs> um, I have to agree. I was trying not to hear the Noir trumpets playing in the background every five seconds. <laughs> yes! It's one of my secret talents. Wow. Secret talent. Just like the Jim Julian voice. Those are top two. Thank you. Um, Doug, I have a question for the uh, local goth here, uh, you. Yeah. Um, do you feel like this captures the darkness in your soul, this book? I can definitely hear something in the way playing whenever I see <laughs> Parker walking across the bridge. That's good. That's good. Anne is upset that I didn't call her the local goth. Oh, I'm upset. Dog? As she's wearing a bright yellow sweater. Dog has a bright white bedspread. You want to call goth? Listen. (laughs) Look at Doug's bedroom and tell me that is not goth. (laughs) Right now. How many leather jackets you got? (laughs) Uh, I actually have two, so take that. Listen here. How many spikes? Don't let him get the spike wristband out. You don't even know about the spike wristband, Anne. There's a whole, there's a whole subsect of goth lore that you don't know about, and I'm Listen. not going to share on this podcast. <laughs> Make your own podcast. <laughs> know, me alone. I Doug's like go- Doug's goth era will not be questioned by the. <laughs> I true. He does be- have the little thumb hole in his shirt. I'm actually That's here for it. Uh, I can't wait to see Doug in some eyeliner and mascara. It's going to be great. <laughs> Well, that's a different. That's not the goth stuff. That's just Tuesday. That's no. He that's just needs to be like Batman in the new uh, Edward Cullen movie. <laughs> I like the idea of that Batman. Like <laughs> he like puts on the smear and then he like makes it a smoky eye and then he like <laughs> just a little bit too and then he's like, no, no, I'm gonna kill my mom. <laughs> he puts the mask on. He's like, no. I'm gonna. Makeup oh. tutorials. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> perfect smoky eye. They Man. pull the mask off. Parker pulls the mask off of him, and it's just like this elaborate smoky eye. And it's like, and you're going to be the only one that can appreciate this. But I saw a tweet the other day that was like, so that's where Edward went during his time off. <laughs> real emo. <laughs> I'm a gossip. My girlfriend left me for a wolf. <laughs> no, Don't he left do the it. girlfriend for the wolf. He said, I'm Just fat, mountain. He has to cake on the, all of the eyeliner to hide the sparkles in the dark. <laughs> Alfred, come here. I need you to tell me if I have hooded eyes or not. Alfred, Alfred did you buy the makeup wipes? <laughs> Alfred! Alfred, we're out of makeup wipes. All right. So who would, win in, a who would win in a fight, Batman or Parker? Parker, 100%. He beat the shit out of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Batman's like, I am fear. I am the <laughs> <laughs> shit out of Batman. <laughs> boom, boom. I feel like Batman. Batman, like, I feel like Batman has kitten paws compared to freaking Parker. <laughs> I think Batman drops behind Parker in the alley and he's like, bleh, bleh, bleh. And Parker's like, go <laughs> 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 boom. Just drops his ass. What was that about not killing? You son of a bitch. Batman's war on crime is incredibly contingent on the fact that he is fighting the most queer-coded rogues gallery in history. 
<laughs> He's like, you're gonna fight crime. And Joker's like, wee wee. <laughs> He wasn't I'm prepared for a guy who is toxic masculinity. Bruce Wayne's like, I'm gonna kick the shit out of you. And you look at his rogues gallery, it's like, what do you have against the LGBTQ community, Bruce Wayne? <laughs> they just Jeez, wanna dye their hair in the bathtub. Leave me alone. What I feel like another hell? thing he can't get you know his back box around Parker's big meaty hands. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody Bruce makes a throws bat a punch. big enough for those things. Because we all know Bruce Wayne has slightly small hands. Yeah. yeah. It's, not something he, it's not something he's trying to talk about, but like he has the little whopper hands. <laughs> and then so, Parker's over here like Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, he's got catcher's mitts. So he just like grabs Batman's hand and he's like, come here, rich boy. Because <laughs> I know who you are. Parker would make Batman quit Cry. being Batman, frankly. That would be the end of the war on crime. You convinced me. I like Parker now. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, no. What have we done? Anne can forgive a little bit of violence towards women if there's also violence towards Batman. <laughs> Cancels out. <laughs> oh, hell. Don't quote All me right. on that. Forgive All me. Right. All right. I'm sorry, women. <laughs> I am a woman. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, we've got some listener questions. Are we ready for them? Mm-hmm. We've had I our suppose. silly, goofy time. Listen, we needed a little bit at the end there. Gotta throw it. I, in. Felt it. I felt it in the room. I was like, man, they didn't have fun. Let's make them, let's make them giggle. <laughs> they did have fun. This is going to be my last episode. Yeah. <laughs> Doug's like, I'd like to come back. Doug's like, I'd like to come back. Have you ever heard of this little comic, Avengers 200? No. <laughs> I think you'll like it. <laughs> Doug, ally of women, says, would you like to read Parker the Hunter with me? I'd never heard of this book before he brought it. This is 100% him. Uh, I oh, okay, cool. He has I a coffee table book and he doesn't even have a coffee table. Unfollow. <laughs> I've got two of these. There's a second volume. I've got both of them. I love them. Wow. All right. More than one coffee So... Ed wrote us in a number of questions, and I'm just going to read them one at a time, and we can answer so we don't get lost in the sauce, okay? Mm-hmm. So, hey, Collective, and hey, Doug. Hope y'all are doing well. My questions for this week are, number one, this comic is an example of adaptation. Why do you think it succeeds as an adaptation, and why do you think other adaptations fail? Because it's good, Ed. There you go. That's it. There's no formula to make an adaptation successful because I've seen adaptations that change a lot from the source material and change upon it in ways that I think are better, that I like a lot better than the original source material that work. I've also seen adaptations like this that basically pull the source material bit by bit, beat by bit, beat by beat, jeez, and, (laughs) you know, still make it work and make it fun. There's no formula to making this work. It's just try not to lose the heart of what you're doing in the process. Absolutely. I feel like for me, this one specifically, I feel like you can tell how much he cares about the original story. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that's the bottom line for me. I've noticed like if the new, if the new person coming into that media cares, Mm -hmm. it's relatively pretty good. Like, yeah. I mean, as bitter as I am to bring up something that's being, t- uh, it's an adaptation that's bringing in a lot of change, 
The Witcher. I don't know if anybody's heard about what's happening with that one and why Henry Cavill (laughs) dipped, but it's because the directors don't give a shit about anything that's happened in the books or with that media. So Mm -hmm. they are full 90 degrees going a different way. And he was like, okay, cool. Bye. (laughs) Like, I care about this media, but you obviously don't. So I'm leaving. And he's going to go be Superman again, which I guess I will allow it. (laughs) But... So I feel like that's, for me, what it is. Yeah. Like, if they care, it's relatively pretty good. Yeah. It's like the difference between The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. <laughs> oh, boy. You're right. <laughs> you're right. Mm-hmm. Look at that. You're making references for me. Look at that. Yeah. You're, a, you're a good friend. Throwing Dallas uh, a bone. Even in this book with all this violence against women, and I'm still doing things for you. <laughs> so, you know. Listen here. <laughs> We value your patience. We value you. Better be careful. Doug's got big hands. You send us this book. We send you to sensitivity training. Yeah, I'm going to be talking with Martha from HR. Frankly, (laughs) my comics collective paycheck is going to be docked because of this. (laughs) Doug, what do you think about this adaptation? Uh, or adaptation in general. I think the Witcher comparison is pretty apt because for me, the big criteria is uh, if you want to adapt something, you have to be additive. And to me, that isn't necessarily adding on to the story. It's just kind of taking, sorry, there's a loud motorcycle that just drove by. Uh, There's, to me, I think a successful adaptation is something that takes the text kind of just filters it through whatever perspective that the the new creator is and then kind of puts it back in a very cohesive way and you can definitely see you can definitely see that process in in Darwin's work here because like we were saying before this feels very authentic down to you know the book jacketing down to the presentation on the outside and you can you can definitely tell there's that same level of craft and care on the inside. He definitely made an adaptation that feels of its time, but also brought like plenty of the modern sensibilities along to kind of make it feel like this complete work that you can appreciate at really any point in time. And I think that's why this works so well for me and why I stuck with this series after this kind of, mixed start i'm gonna say (laughs) i agree um question two plays off this well uh this one is more for dallas uh, the cutest member of the comics collective thank you ed for saying that um recently you finished reading the shinning uh i love the shinning and i'm sorry that was mean uh you recently finished reading the shining and said it was better than the movie what needs to happen so that an adaptation from a book to a visual medium needs to do so that the visual medium is better and does parker accomplish this i think parker is fantastic i haven't read the novel so i can't really say that it's better or worse but i think that as a visual piece it works phenomenally i think another similarly marvelous uh, adaptation to a comic book is slaughterhouse five that ryan north was a part of from a couple years ago incredible one of my favorite graphic novels um, adaptation to visual is incredibly tough. And I don't think that we give directors and screenwriters 
and just production teams in general that pull it off enough credit because something that's at the core of novels and I'm learning this as, as I'm writing one um, is that so much of it is internal. So much of it is in a person's head. When you're reading a novel, you have access to the thoughts and feelings of your main character in a way that you cannot convincingly do the same ways in a visual medium. There are no movies where it's like, and then Harry Potter thought, you know, you have to show through that character's actions. You have to show through their conversations with other people where they're at in a way you don't have to with a book. But then similarly, something that a lot of books fall into as writers shift their main source of media literacy towards films and TV shows in our modern era, there are a lot of books that want you to know what people's faces look like and what like, oh, he had a disgruntled look. Like, I don't fucking care. Like, it's in my brain. Like, my brain isn't picturing that. Quit trying to tell me visually what's happening in this conversation. Like, that's not going to work. You have to understand what your specific medium is going to bring. And I think what is so beautiful about this book is that Darwin Cook is a master of comic book storytelling that understands how he can tell Parker's story in a comic book, how he can convey the workmanlike violence that Parker does. There aren't flashy gunfights. It's one shot that blows somebody's head off. And so, you know, this is harsh. It is scary. And it isn't like a sexy, fun thing that's happening. And... I think that is at the core of adaptation is understanding what your media does well. Do you guys have any other thoughts about that? I know they said it was specifically for me, but all right. Question just, number. Th- oh, I was going to say, just glad you like the book shining better than the movie. I'm just, I'm glad. way better. Stevie, also, right. Shout out. Perfect. Anne. she told me to get on my Stephen King bullshit. And then I read the gunslinger and I said, Anne, you're crazy for this. And then <laughs> She said, no, 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 you got to read another one. And so then I've read two more now. And this man is well on his way to maybe being my favorite author of all time. (laughs) My friend Anne is the reason that I read more Stephen King and I have been completely enthralled. So shout out you for good taste. All right, everyone. Soft claps for Anne. Soft claps for Anne. Soft claps. It's okay. I know. I am wonderful. (laughs) All right. I want Doug to answer this one first. Uh, This piece of Cook's work is a stark (laughs) contrast to his other work, and you wouldn't expect due to how we know him from stories like The Final Frontier. What, or The New Frontier. What's your favorite example of a creative doing something that's not usually in their wheelhouse? Yeah. uh, I'm glad that they brought up the uh the comparison to the new frontier because i like that's something that i kind of wish i'd talked about more uh like there you can see like the there are different foundational pieces but darwin is just such a master he can do something that's like very much his work but it's totally different and it's i don't know it's tricky because i'm trying to think of of stuff that i can compare that um Gosh, like I, I just keep this. This is such a magnetic work. But if you ask me, something that um, 
at least from a visual perspective that I thought was such a huge breath of fresh air is um, Gendy Tartakovsky's Primal, which is his newest series on Adult Swim. Uh, easily the coolest thing in the world. Like after, after making very clean, polished stuff for decades, he just kind of comes out of the gate and goes, I want to make like a wild as heck Frank Frazetta tribute where a caveman rides a dinosaur. Bada boom. And it's amazing. So I guess that's my two cents on that. I like it. That's a good one. I have a comics one that I was thinking about, and it's the difference of a creator when they're writing versus when they're writing and drawing. Um, Because Scotty Young doing something like I Hate Fairyland, which is completely bombastic and totally in his style. If you've seen any of his variant covers, you know exactly what this cover, what this comic is going to look like in every single page. That's everything I expected and more. But then you pick up a book like The Me You Love in the Dark, which is so, so tonally and just narratively different than that. It's more subtle. It's more horrific. It's more serious than I would have expected. It's just two opposite sides of the coin. And it's amazing to see someone who can flip between those. That's a really good one. Um, Lex, it doesn't necessarily have to be a comic. Do you have a favorite example of a creator surprising you with their artwork? Um, that's a really good question. I feel like since I am so new to like the comic world, my answer might be kind of silly, but like I remember for the very first time reading any reading Tilly Walden's um any honestly any of her things at all. But I just remember being so taken aback by how beautiful her artwork was. And that one just they just have still stuck with me to this end. Like I still go and swipe through a lot of them. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, with again, I'm still a novice, but comparing Fairy Tale from Stephen King to The Shining, I read both of them back to back over the course of a week, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Man, this guy's got some range." <laughs> and I feel like Fairy Tale was perfect because it was not at all what I expected. And if I'd started with The Shining, I would have read it and been like, "Yeah, what a great horror writer." I will pick him up next spooky season, absolutely. But because I started with Fairy Tale, I went. Oh man, what a boss ass bitch. Period. <laughs> Period T says this 75 year old. And so then I read The Shining and I went, well, now I want to read every single thing that you've ever written. Yep. And I think he's just got such an impressive range that I am completely enraptured in mm-hmm. at the moment. My comics reading has suffered because my novel <laughs> reading is through the roof at the moment. Oh, very, very excited for you to pick up the stand eventually. Make sure you don't get the abridged one, get the, get the hefty one. I got the big one on Audible when I am finally done with my contract with the devil Alexis to finish A Song of Ice and Fire before December. I will be listening to The Stand next. Yes. Also, Lex, I finished the third book today, so we can Good. Try. <laughs> um, oh, but before I forget, too, I just thought of another creator if we're, if we're still doing stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is somebody I just came into recently uh, and I who I've kind of nudge Dallas's way. Uh, I love Matt Wagner as a creator because this is a guy who, who was also another writer illustrator and he's done stuff on the indie scene. He's done stuff with, uh, with DC. I think he's done stuff with 2000 AD and it's amazing. It's like ha- having 
read all of his stuff from the beginning and seeing how he kind of evolves from project to project, uh, I still can't even put it into words, but he's an incredible creator to watch and to read. I wholeheartedly agree. And I've been very happy to be diving into Matt Wagner off of your recommendation. The moral of this is get cool friends that recommend mm-hmm. you cool stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, That's what this is all about. Yeah. It's just a bunch of friends talking about a good-ass book. All right. Cook always knocks it out of the park. It's in his name, Darwin. What? Who's a creative that somehow only bats 10 out of 10s, in your opinion? Before anyone else can say it, I'm saying it. Oh. Daniel Warren Johnson. The man doesn't miss. Literally, every comic from Daniel Warren Johnson is incredible, mm-hmm. and I particularly recommend Murder Falcon and Do a Powerbomb, which I think are 12 out of 10 comics. I got one, but I don't want to steal it from Lexi. I might surprise you. I'm going with somebody that's new to me. And so far, so don't correct me if I'm wrong or problematic when I say it, but so far, George R.R. R. Martin is doing Ooh. it for me. I'm loving these Game of Thrones books. I cannot uh. wait till the end of your episode where I can just ramble for 45 minutes. They have me in a choke hold. I can't help myself. It's like oh. all day, every day. I have my headphones and listening to these damn books, Goodness. but I'm like six years behind everybody else, but I don't even care. <laughs> Everything's a surprise because I don't know how I missed all that media when the show was coming out, but I did. Mm-hmm. I very, very cool. Slaps. I, I was going to say Tilly Walden. Oh, yeah, that's okay. You can have that one. <laughs> I, already, I already said I love her. Yes. <laughs> how about you, Doucheless? Who is a 10 out of 10 creator for you? <sighs> wow, that that threw me for a loop, what you just said there. Uh <laughs> We are not friends anymore. You are uninvited to next year's Friendsgiving. Oh, man. I mean, my so many of my top artists are people we already mentioned. I really love Matt Wagner. I really love Darwin Cook, but those are the obvious choices. Uh, somebody who I think has batted pretty consistently for me, uh, Paul Dini. I love Paul Dini's entire run on Batman. I think... Um, you know, obviously he killed it in the animated series and it just translated so well into what he wrote for, for comics. And yeah, I think I, I love Scott Snyder, but Paul Dini is the gold standard for Batman for me. Best Satana run too. Yeah. That one is so good. I also want to say, say a shout out Grant Morrison. You always be my beloved. I was wondering when you'd come around to that. I thought you were going to say that at first. We almost got through a whole whole episode. episode. And then my dumb ass has to mention Zatanna. And fucking. Their Zatanna is great. Yeah, it is. Uh... Fuck. We made it an hour and 34 minutes, everyone. An hour and 34. Never again. Never again. Everybody Everybody take your shot. All right, Ed for question five says, I personally would trust the protagonist of this book to work as a valet. It's in his name, Park Er. Who God damn it. Who would you trust? I wouldn't trust this man with anything. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't trust Parker alone in a room with anyone I love. So yeah. 
I don't, I don't, I don't trust anyone. I don't trust Ed to write us any more questions. <laughs> I think Parker's big meaty vice hands would break the steering wheel. Honestly. Um, True. Who would I trust with my car? I don't own a car, but my bicycle, I would trust Paddington the bear with my bicycle. Oh, he's in the beer, and he'd leave you a little marmalade sandwich too. Marmalade <laughs> on the seat. Um, I I would trust Superman with my car because he wouldn't even drive it; he'd just pick it up. He'd Watch he'd, it. Keep this in my fortress. I got a garage. Like, uh, Alfred Pennyworth would be really good with cars. He probably has Ooh, to deal yeah. with a lot of them. <laughs> that was a smart answer, man. That was a really I feel like good he's one. good with everything, actually, <laughs> including emotions. Par- First off, Alfred could fix Parker. <laughs> True. He could not. I'm sorry. He Parker would partake in the bat-shaped tea bags. Okay, he would not be able to help himself. <laughs> Parker only likes strong black coffee that's been slightly burned, <laughs> scalded. <laughs> And he's still gonna take out his flask and just pour a little yeah. bit in. That's not as the good as they make it sound. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. It not sounds terrible. Buddy the- I don't know what Buddy the Elf was talking about. It is horrible. I love the idea of Alexis being like, "I saw this in a movie." <laughs> I did. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't a movie that enticed. That put the idea back in my mind. It was my uncle that I work with, who's a terrible person. Should not take it, you guys. <laughs> All right, Doug, who are you trusting with your car? Who would I trust with my car? Uh, I'm going to say Iron Man. He's an engineer. He'd give me a tune-up. Or he'd smash it. <laughs> he did that to yeah. many of his own. But like Dallas, I don't own a car, so I, I really have nothing oh. to lose in this scenario. Listen, our Lamborghini is a car. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last question is, if something was buried and the guest retrieved it from the underground, would you say he dug it up? Have a great week, Ed. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Anne turned off her camera. She has left the building <laughs> because Ed has pushed her too far. All right. Last up, she, she's in the chat. She's saying obscene things. All right, last up, we have from Chris. Hello, Lexi and Allison Doug. I'm excited to hear your opinions on this book and hopefully the rest of the series. I'm hoping that too, Chris. I don't know what our odds are. I am a huge fan of the Parker novels, having read all of them plus the three when he briefly appears. And I'm sad that Darwin could not finish what he started. My book question is, are there any long running book series that you would like to see become a comic slash graphic novel series? Number two, my off topic question. You can, but don't need to name any titles. What type of books slash comics would you select if you knew they would be the last you ever read slash reread? Thanks for the show. I'm not on social media unless you count YouTube and lurking on Twitch. So I found you searching for podcasts about some of my favorite books. I don't remember which one was first. I only remember it was Dallas with his classmates. Aww. I am glad I did because it helps me get through the week listening to three friends talk about comics, even ones which honestly I probably will never read, whether through <laughs>, laughs and a hard slash needed discussion. Thanks, Chris. That was really yeah, sweet. Thanks. Um, um, so the first question was, are there any long running series you want to be, see, be made into graphic novels? 
I got an answer. All right. Pretty Doug. basic, but I think someone with Darwin's craft could easily pull this off. Sherlock Holmes. Ooh. I think Sherlock oh, yeah. Holmes is like the archetypal story that can lend itself to stuff like this, especially if you kind of take the, uh, the more hardened detective story and infuse it with like maybe some noir stuff. I think you could, you could make some very flashy visuals for this. I like that a lot. I love Sherlock Holmes. That's one of my mm-hmm. secret origins is that I love Sherlock Holmes. Same. I've read like all of them. That would be very, very cool. I'm going to go because there's not enough lesbian comics for me to recommend that Dallas read. Um, I'm going to say, since I'm reading through the books right now, the Locked Tomb series would be really cool in graphic novel form. Mm. Loving Gideon the Ninth so, so much. Hmm. Oh, also, speaking of things, the first thing I thought of when I was thinking about this was the Dark Tower, but that's already in comic form. That had um, Stephen King writing and Jai Lee on art, which was absolutely fucking perfect. And the stand was also adapted into a graphic novel. Hmm. Because, like, I similarly, I would probably say Dune would be pretty great, but they kind of already did that. I don't know if it's good or (laughs) not. Um,. The Expanse would be pretty cool. I love The Expanse. And similarly, I don't know if the A Song of Ice and Fire ones are any good, but I know they yeah. did do those. I was going to say that same thing. I was like, I would love those, but I think they've already been done. I was also going to say Percy Jackson, but I know that one's kind of been lightly done. I don't know anything really? about that one, but... <laughs> Has anyone ever done a Lord of the Rings comic before? Ooh. I'm stealing my pitch, Anne. Sorry, scratch that from the record. <laughs> Disney, that would be cool. Um, Lord of the Rings is the coolest thing ever, period. Period T. Star Wars adaptation comics also are great. Fun fact, whether or not you would want to believe it, Marvel Star Wars comics, they're great. Completely crazy how good those are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fire. You, heard it here, you heard it here first, folks. And unlike the movies, they're actually gay. <laughs> <laughs> true alright and second general question if you knew that something was going to be your last thing you ever read slash reread what would it be doesn't have to be a comic this, that's a lot of pressure fun of me. I'm going to literally set myself up to be ridiculed for years do it P- please listening specifically to the Twilight Audible series. You're a criminal. Beautiful. <laughs> That's the way to go. I will lock the door behind me. <laughs> Don't let them bully you. It's not a bad choice. I listen to um, it over and over and over and over again. I'm glad I set you I, free from that with A Song oh, of Ice and Fire. Yeah, thank you. I'll just go right back. <laughs> I'm stuck between two... Knowing it be the last thing I ever read, I'm stuck between two very important... Um, books for me personally and they both have to do with either good versus evil and or life after death and just death in, of a, in and of itself one is death the high cost of living I would read through that miniseries again in a heartbeat if I knew I was about to die that would be exactly what I would need and the other I've talked about it once or twice already the stand by Stephen King because it's a story about the end and about the 
battle between forces of good and evil, and it has some really good messages in there about that too. So I like it. How about you, Doug? That's really tricky. Uh, Cause like, I, I never have any hierarchy for these. I just kind of read whatever I like in the moment, but uh, to put like a, a, a final point on that. Uh, hmm. See, I just thought of one and then I immediately forgot it too. Uh, oh yeah. Um, if I had to pick a book, it would be American Gods. Ooh, um, great book. Yeah, it's something that I I reread like every year, and I love it. Um, and if I had to, <laughs> what was if I had to uh, pick a comic or a graphic novel, ah, uh, gosh, just pick American Gods again. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> they adapted that. Uh, oh man. Uh, I would have to say All-Star Superman. Oh, yeah. It's the best one. That's a good yeah. one. All right. I would uh, reread the Book of Mormon to uh, put my my best word in. Uh, thank you. This has been the Comics Collective. <laughs> um, oh, I thought you meant the play for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I just read the screen. The, the, the screen. The, the script. script. Yeah. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. As someone who is a Mormon, going to the Book of Mormon the musical, I was a little bit like, all right, I'm ready to be made fun of. I was not ready to be less made fun of than black people, honestly. I watched that movie and I was like, you are meaner to Africa than me. Like <laughs> That came out wrong. You are here <laughs> to Africa than you are to the Mormons in this thing that is about making fun of Mormons. It was crazy. Whoa. Fully insane. Just going to throw that out there. Um, no, but... Oh. oh, nope, you. Uh, all right. So books that I would reread, I would love to reread The Hobbit. I love The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite book of all time. And I would also love to reread Saga, which... I love and is a comic book that is very near and dear to my heart. I tend to not talk about it as much as it is meaningful to me. I adore those Mm -hmm. characters. That book made me into a better, more rounded person, well-rounded person. And I think it's incredible. So those would be my two, two reads. I like that. I'm I'm surprised no one said a book they hated. Cause like, if you're on your way out, just be like, I feel I'm going to miss my life so much. Read something that's awful and you'll be like, I'm ready. Take me now. True, <laughs> true. You hand me Catcher in the Rye and Holden will put me right in the ground. I fucking hate <laughs> Catcher in the Rye. That's, I want to um, want to sick Parker on Holden. Fucking the red badge of courage. <laughs> I just went through World War One in my head over that book. <laughs> If they wanted us to know what it felt like to be on the front, reading the Red Badge of Courage had to be worse. Mm -hmm. It was a nightmare that I... It's like that nightmare you, like, I know I had it, but I can't remember anything that happened in it. Ooh, more books I hate? Hatchet. Hate Hatchet. Oh, really? I liked Hatchet. No way. No way. Every book that is about a little boy that complains. I don't know what it was. Maybe my grandma's like, you complain a lot. Here you go, little bitch. But like, she gave me so many books that the genre was like, this little boy's having a hard time. 
<laughs> hate all those books. All of them. Beautiful. Yep, and that's that. Wait, Lexi, do you have any books you hate? From Book Hill. of Mormon. And the, Book of Mormon. the Bible. <laughs> no, I accidentally tripped on rock at BYU and said the F word, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get struck down. It's like, I am going to die right here on this job site. <laughs> Doug, you got to go. Books you hate. I don't read any books I hate. <laughs> uh, You're blessed then. Good for you. Gosh. <laughs> you never stumbled into one? You've gotten luckier than us then. Because you think See, we want was... to read books we hate? Do you think I picked up The Catcher in the Rye? Like, I bet I'll hate this. <laughs> I only read comic books, so I never read real books. Uh, let me think here. Uh, books I hate. Books I Ooh, hate. I hate The Giver. That was another one. Sorry. That was oh, bad. actually, you know what? There is one book that I cannot stand. <laughs> yes. Uh, and if anybody's heard of this, don't ever read Snow Crash. <laughs> oh, like, you don't like that? It's all of the worst cyberpunk tropes mashed together into a an uncomfortably long book that just has funny. like this 50 page tangent about Sumerian language. <laughs> Sounds right up my alley. That's the Neil Stevenson novel, right? I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's been on my Alice list. Is, so that's funny. Intrigued. <laughs> that's funny. All right. Well, this has been a good episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Parker. I like you more than my co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> Just the fact that I'm we're sorry, Parker. Yeah. <laughs> it's because Parker's standing right off screen with those big meaty hands ready to kill Dallas. <laughs> Mal is in the corner watching me undress. Like, <laughs> Put a horrible oh, man. Uh, okay. Um, everyone, please, if you like our show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective or our TikTok account at The Comics Collective, or you can find each of us on our personal Twitter accounts at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou Comics. Also, Doug, where can the people find you? Well, you can probably find me best on YouTube. I am there at the channel for Every Kind of Geek. You can find me on Twitter, at least for now, at Every Kind of Geek. And for any other socials, which I will probably start uh, getting around to any day now, Instagram, Vimeo, for Every Kind of Geek. Outstanding. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, especially here during these holiday seasons, if you want to give us a gift, please go and leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And if you do so, we will read it off on the show. Also, word of mouth helps a ton. I wanted to shout out, uh, we got a really nice thing. Uh, Apparently, Challengers Comics and Conversations in Chicago regularly recommends our podcast to their new Mm -hmm. customers. So oh, we have wow. we have listeners from the Chicago area because their LCS shouts us out and says that we're a show that they like. So wanted to say thank you so much for doing that. And I know it means a lot more to me when I get a friend of mine saying I should check something out than just some random thing. So mm-hmm. if there is someone in your life that you think would like our show, 
let them know and then let us know that you did that because that would be really fun. That's so awesome. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And please join us next week for our episode on Layla Star. I'm yeah. very I'm very excited for this one because I did a little mini snippet for a book club mm-hmm. like months and months and months ago. And I'm excited to read the full story because it wasn't out all the way when I read it the first time. So this is the very first comic ever that I will be revisiting, everyone. Ever. So I always excited. say that all the time. Say, so speaking of another comic that means a lot in just terms of like life and death, this is a this is a big one. So this is gonna be fun. It's gonna be a great episode. So make sure to tune in. Bye. 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 Bye.